Hello, and welcome to the Dustcast, the podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient Hebraic context of our faith. In this episode, I want to try to take us on a journey. I'm going to do my best to paint a picture and transport us back into the time of Jesus. It's going to require a little setup, so hang in there with me through some of the history and even Greek mythology, but I think it'll be worth it as we try to really understand the context and get a new perspective on one of the stories of Jesus' life. I've been blessed to travel to the Holy Lands twice. The first time I was a member of a group that went over there to tour, and then uh, I was so blessed by the experience that later I led a group from my church. Both times, uh, our tour guide in the Holy Lands was a man named Nadal, a Christian from Bethlehem, who has a real heart for the kingdom and uh, an amazing knowledge of the land. I was surprised how much I learned just being in that area, uh, learning about the geography, the archaeology, the language, and the culture, and the history. And so today, I want to dive into one particular example of that, the story of uh, Jesus in Caesarea Philippi. And I would suspect that many of you listening to the podcast have heard of Caesarea Philippi, although it's possible that you can't recall off the top of your head any particular Bible story that happens there. I know that before I traveled to Israel and really was able to see some of these locations firsthand, it was so difficult for me to keep many of the place names uh, in mind and remember the significance of the geography. So we're going to look at the history of the place first, and then I'll tell the story. And hopefully as we tell the story, you'll hear it in a new way. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is also known as Panius, after the Greek god Pan. It's located at the southwestern base of Mount Hermon, and it's one of the main headwaters of the Jordan River. The area is actually scattered with ancient temples from uh Canaanite, actually Syrian, Baal worship. Uh, Historians have listed at least 14 such temples in the area. It was certainly a place beneath the shadow of ancient gods, and even took on the name the Rock of the Gods. And so this one place, the city, which became known as Caesarea Philippi, was located within a region broadly known as the Panion, which was the region of the Greek god Pan. And I didn't realize before researching this just how significant that was. I I think of the primary centers of this Greek mythology being within Greece itself. And of course, it originally was, but the Hellenized world spread so extensively under uh, Alexander the Great and then his successors that this region in uh, the far northern tip of Israel was actually the worldwide center of Pan worship. And that's why it was known as the Panion. Pan was the god of fright, among other things. That's actually where we get our English word panic. Pan's father was Hermes, the messenger god. And one of the things that Hermes was supposed to do was conduct souls to Hades. So when you died and went down to Hades, you had to cross over a river, among other things. And it was the god Hermes who would conduct souls into Hades. Uh, The Greeks and really the whole Hellenized world started to refer to anywhere that was a a supposed entrance into the underworld as the gates of Hades. And uh, one of the places that often it was thought that there was an entrance into the underworld was where water came out of the ground. So a spring, for instance, was viewed as a, a gate into the underworld. And in Caesarea Philippi, there is a 
giant source of water springing up out of the earth that actually flows into a river that becomes one of the headwaters of the Jordan River. And so you get the center of Pan worship. There's a statue of Pan there, a temple to Pan. And this entrance into Hades, where Pan's father Hermes would then conduct souls into Hades. And so you get the statue, the temple of of Pan at this entrance to Hades. And in a sense, you can view Pan as holding the keys to Hades. So a little bit more about the history of Caesarea Philippi itself. When Herod the Great died in 4 BC, his kingdom was divided among his three sons. His son Archelaus took Judea and Samaria. Herod Antipas took Galilee and Perea, which is Transjordan. And then Philip took over uh, the far northern area, the territory of the Golan, east of the Jordan River and north of the Sea of Galilee, north of the area of Galilee. And so it's in this region that, that we find Caesarea Philippi, the far northern area of Israel. When Panius had first come under Roman rule, King Herod the Great had built this magnificent temple of white marble and dedicated uh, the temple to the godhead of Caesar. But then it was only later, under his son, Herod Philip, that the city was built up around it. And then if we look a little bit more at some of the history of the Roman emperors, in 42 BC, Julius Caesar was formally deified as the divine Julius. At that time, uh, Roman emperors were typically only deified after their death. It was in poor taste at the time to want to be viewed as a god during your lifetime. But his adopted son, Octavian, who we probably better know as Augustus, uh, thus became known during his life as the son of the divine one. So after his death, Julius Caesar was known as the divine Julius. He was thought of as a god. But during Augustus's life, he was known as the son of the god because his father was, at that point, divine. Upon his death in 14 AD, Augustus was then also declared a full god by the Senate to be worshipped by the Romans. And then the names Augustus and Caesar were adopted by every subsequent emperor. And that's how we get the month, uh, August, named in his honor as well. And so I want you to imagine yourself sometime during the life of Jesus to be traveling up to Caesarea Philippi. And you know that Caesar Augustus had been known as the Son of God. And you have to imagine that you're not a particularly orthodox Jew because there's no reason for a good Jew to be in Caesarea Philippi. This is a very pagan place. You would find orthodox Jews in some areas of the Galilee and down in Judea. Uh, But unless they had a particularly good reason, there was uh, very little chance of them going up to Caesarea Philippi. But imagine yourself, whether you're a Roman citizen or perhaps a very Hellenized Jew that is not particularly Orthodox, going up to Caesarea Philippi. And and what is it that you're going to see as you go on this journey towards the mountains into this rocky terrain? Perhaps you're thinking, I'm going to go see the gates of Hades, this spring of water bursting forth from deep under the ground where you believe that Sheol and Hades resides. Certainly you're going to think of the giant temple, this beautiful stone temple built out of marble, which is just carved right into the rock of the mountain. And so as you walk up to the city and are able to see it for the first time, 
and you see the town at the base of the mountain, and then the sheer stone face of this cliff. And into the rocks of the mountain is carved the temple. There's a little niche in one of the stone walls where there's a statue of Pan. And you think, wow, look at this beautiful rock temple. Caesar really is the son of God. And the power of the stones and the temple and the religious atmosphere, the pagan religious atmosphere, was probably palpable. And so into this context of Caesarea Philippi, run by a pagan ruler, dedicated to Caesar and the god Pan, dominated by this large stone temple, we get the story of Jesus and his disciples. And I'll read from Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 19. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So after Julius Caesar died, his son Augustus was known as the son of a god. But I love that in this story we get Jesus identified as the son of the living God. And this was not something that was told by man, spread by the cult of emperor worship or mandated by the state. But this is something that was revealed directly from God in heaven, as Jesus says to Peter this was not revealed to you by man, but my, by my Father in heaven. And I also love how Jesus says, On this rock I will build my church, which I think can refer to Peter's confession, but I think can also refer to Peter himself and all of the apostles and the believers after him. We are the living rocks of the temple. During his life, Jesus acted as a one-man walking, living temple, we know that he referred to himself this way when he said that he would destroy the temple and raise it again on the third day. But if we go back to the ancient Hebraic theology of the temple, this was the location where heaven and earth touched, where God, who dwelled in heaven, made his presence most fully known on earth by filling the temple. The temple, which was the theological center of Jerusalem, which was the theological center of the world to the Jews, was this one point where the connection with God, the connection between heaven and earth, was most real. And things that were only supposed to happen at the temple, sacrifices and the forgiveness of sins, were things that Jesus did elsewhere. Of course, through his own sacrifice, but even in his life, through the way that he forgave sins wherever he went. And you see Jesus then as the temple, not a temple of stone, but a living temple of flesh. And we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4-6, through 6, Peter says, 
as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And the Hebrew word for temple is the same as the word for house. And so I think in verse 5 when it says that we, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, that it, it means that we are being built into the temple. This is the, the pun in the story of David when David wants to build a temple. And God says to him, You want to build me a house, but I will build you a house. The house that David wants to build God is a temple, but the house that God will build him is a dynasty. And this idea that I touched on a moment ago of temples being where heaven and earth connected is not unique to just the Israelites. Uh, Babylonian ziggurats were, were not temples per se. They were different than temples. Uh, but I think it's an interesting example of that the ancient worldview of how heaven and earth might be connected. Uh, actually, I think the ziggurat is um, what we see described in the story of the Tower of Babel. And I think John Walton uh, makes a strong case for this in a couple of his books. But the Babylonians viewed the ziggurats, which were essentially giant staircases, as a place where their gods, which were viewed as living in heaven in the skies, could descend and then walk down the stairs and come to earth. And so they built these ziggurats as a way of enticing their gods down to dwell with them and to take care of them. And we do worship a God who comes to earth, but it's not one that needs a stone ziggurat or even a stone temple, though I think that God did use that during a, a time with the Israelites. But we worship a God who comes in the flesh, a God who is fully attached to this world and who desires to dwell with us. And now that Jesus has ascended and sent the Holy Spirit to dwell with us, we as his church, as his community of believers, are the living stones that create the temple. We are to be that place where heaven and earth connect. And through the way that we interact with people, forgive people, bless them and heal them, and work for the restoration of communities and relationships and love on this world, we are to carry out that mission of the temple, that mission of Christ, of bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth as he prays in the Lord's Prayer, as we await for its ultimate fulfillment, which only God will bring. It was November, which is later than typical leaf season in the Carolinas, but the warmer weather that year had delayed the change, and there were these bright, beautiful 
colored leaves falling from the towering trees above. My wife Jaren and I were driving on this spectacularly windy backcountry road. The two narrow lanes wove around bends uh, up into the hills as we worked our way higher up in elevation. And then eventually we turned on this one-lane dirt road. And I mean one lane total, not one lane going in each direction. If another car had come the opposite way, I literally don't know what we would have done. Uh, But thankfully we made it all the way along this dirt road and ended up at the state forest. And there we spent all day hiking along these just stunning waterfalls. And as we sat on a rock outcropping, feeling the cool breeze mixed with the warm sunshine and listening to the thunder of the water, I felt completely at home. Almost everyone, I think, can relate to experiencing moments like I just described of sublime peace and joy and contentment. Oftentimes it is in nature that we experience moments like that, or other times it may be any scenario with family and loved ones, maybe at the birth of a child or at a wedding, or just a simple evening of laughter with old friends. A lot of times it's when we're serving others, and sometimes, strangely, you can even catch a glimpse of this feeling during moments of deep pain and grief when you're embraced by loved ones who are simply there to be present with you. But whatever it is, many of us have felt moments where we feel truly content and at home. I remember back in high school, my best friend talking about a moment like that. It was the fall around Halloween time. And he talked about being outside with the cold weather blowing in in Austin, sipping on some hot beverage with loved ones and carving pumpkins. Just those moments when everything seems perfect. And if we think about, from a spiritual lens, how we view this world, I think often when Christians talk about heaven or about life after death, We tend to use phrases and imagery that involve escaping this world. Our souls leaving our mortal bodies behind to go somewhere that's entirely other. You know, we we may at times even look forward to the idea of a time when God would just burn this evil world up and be done with it forever so that we can go join him up in heaven. But if that's true, should I be worried that I do sometimes feel quite at home here? I think that our views of the afterlife often suffer from an excessively weak creational theology. And all I mean by that is that when we think about what God is doing in the world, and especially what we expect him to do at the end, we often seem to forget that he made this world, that he called it very good, and that I believe he continues to love it. When I have learned more about the ancient Near Eastern context of the creation account in Genesis, I've come to see the cosmos as God's sanctuary, with the Garden of Eden as the antechamber to his Holy of Holies. And you see God walking there daily with Adam and Eve in the garden. Our God is the God who made this world, and I don't think that he simply wants to be done with it. When we look at the themes in Scripture that talk about what is to come, in my mind, they focus much more on renewal, redemption, restoration, rebirth, and resurrection than they do on destruction. Each of those words begins with re because they talk about what is old coming again, being made new, being brought back to the glory that God intended. 
And the imagery in Scripture that is used to describe God's salvation frequently involves the rebuilding of ruined places and the replanting of desolate land. You can see Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 36. Or the redemption and glorification of the whole creation, as in Romans chapter 8. The resurrection of our bodies, like in 1 Corinthians 15. And even God coming down to earth to dwell with man again, in Revelation 21. And I think that's the opposite of the way that we often think about it. We, we tend to imagine ourselves going out to dwell with God. But if we read scripture with fresh eyes and try to set aside our preconceived notions of the rapture or playing harps on clouds with angels, I think the Bible, and you can especially see this in Revelation 21, 22, it's fairly clear that it's God who will come down to us. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. And in one sense, the story of the Bible, the big narrative, is the story of God breaking back in to restore his presence on earth. It's as if heaven, which is God's domain, his presence, his dimension of reality, and earth were fully integrated at the beginning, and then they get separated. But God remains attached to earth, and he is the proactive one that takes the initiative to break back in. And we see it in little ways at first, through the Ark of the Covenant, which represents God's presence with Israel, through the tabernacle, which is a, a bigger, though mobile, setting for God's presence. And you can see God in the pillar of fire and smoke. Then eventually in the temple, which is a permanent dwelling place for God. And some of the imagery, such as in the prophets, is so powerful of how God's presence fills the temple. And then we get God back on earth in it, the most true sense with the incarnation of Jesus. And at the beginning of the book of Acts, as Jesus ascends, the Holy Spirit is sent. And then that takes us all the way through to the promises of Revelation, which see a reuniting of God's full presence of heaven here on earth with the new heavens and the new earth the new Jerusalem that comes down. And what I love about the Christian story is that this is how God works. In many other worldviews and philosophies and religions, there is at least some element of a need for detachment, to escape suffering, to rid ourselves of desires. And yet with Christianity, we see a God who is strangely attached to our world, and I think dedicated to it. It's a God that works in history, a God that works by coming down to the dirt and the dust of earth and actually becoming a man, and a God who expects us to remain attached. True religion is to visit the widows and the orphans. The ancient Jews had a saying that I love, which is tikkun olam, repairing the world. The idea that as we wait for the world to come, when God will fully reinstate his kingdom, that our task is to join along with him in the repairing of the world. And yet, so often, this world doesn't feel quite right. And so I can understand when Christians feel the need to express a sense of not belonging. And so we'll say things like, I wasn't created for this world, I was created for heaven. And of course, there's that hymn, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. But Genesis 1 and 2 doesn't say that we were designed for some other heaven. It says that we were made from the dust of this earth, and that we were designed to live on earth. But if this world is our home, 
Why do we feel such an ache and a nagging discontent at times? I believe we were created for this world, but this world has changed. It's fallen and we're fallen. Things are not as they are supposed to be. And so I think our true ache is not to escape this world, though we may sometimes long for that, but rather to see this world restored and filled with the glory of God. There is now a chasm between our world and the kingdom of heaven, but the kingdom is breaking back in. We see now dimly as through a mirror, and we long to see clearly. And so if we go back to that image in Revelation, I think that in one sense the new Jerusalem is a return to the Garden of Eden. God dwells with us there. The tree of life is there to sustain us. A river flows and nourishes the land. And in a sense in Revelation we come full full circle to where we started. But in another sense it's even more. The garden has turned into a city. Human society and culture flourishes and the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. So come, let us plead the case of the widow, defend the orphan, pursue justice and mercy, and release God's transforming love into a broken and battered world. After all, he created it, and he still loves it. All right, that wraps up another episode of the Dustcast. The music on this episode was brought to you by the good people at Five Iron Frenzy. Check them out at fiveironfrenzy.com or on iTunes or anywhere that fine music is sold. I'll also put up a link to the songs on the notes at thedustcast.com. Thanks for joining. Everett, what is your favorite Five Iron Frenzy song? Um, Battle the who do you want to be like when you grow up? Reese Roper. Reese Roper, the singer from Five Iron Frenzy? Yes. What about Dada? Do you want to be like your Dada? No. <gasps> Why do you like Five Iron Frenzy so much? Because. Because. Because I like Battle Dancing Unicorns and Two Year Rings and Twenty Dogs to Be Nights. And sometimes I sing. <laughs>